Book of the Stranger. This year's fourth episode was another major hit in what is proving to be a very strong and popular season six. Right now, the episode's sitting at 9.3 on IMDb, which would put it in or around the top ten. At the end of the season, we'll check in again on which episodes are, are the top ten based on IMDb ratings. But for now, this one's really close to the top. Not the top, but up there pretty high. Yet this high standard, or standing, whichever you want to call it, is atypical because most of the top-rated Game of Thrones episodes feature a lot of action. That's the thing that sort of bumps them up to the next level in popularity. And those episodes tend to be towards the end of the season, not in this first half. So, this episode, unlike Hard Home, Blackwater, The Mountain of the Viper, you get the picture. Those are the some of the other highly rated ones, and you can understand why those are so highly rated. You can see the common theme with those, which is, again, the action. This episode is winning acclaim for other reasons. The pacing is excellent. The scenes relate to each other in many subtle and clever ways. The themes are also clear and strong. There's genuine emotional payoff, strong dialogue ranging from passionate to badass, and comic relief without dialogue, very good facial acting. We book readers tend to be far more critical than the show-only folk, mostly because we have expectations and we love the source material so much we hate to see it change. This episode was widely applauded by book readers, however, except for the final scene, which really divided people. And of course, we'll talk about that in due time. The Targaryens are not fireproof argument has been in the fandom since before the show even existed. So a lot of people really have had an opinion on this for a long time. And so it was a little jarring to see it this way. But we're here to unpack that and discuss the differences and remember and remind that book canon is not show canon, for better or worse, for as how painful that can be sometimes, that's the way it is. And so we can, be, we can be fair in liking it or not liking it, that's up to us. But as far as judging it, we have to be fair in recognizing that one canon is different than the other. Now when I first watched the scene, I thought it was way over the top and a bit silly, but after watching it again and again, and analyzing it, I actually think it fits nicely, and it, complete, and it was completely set up in advance in terms of the show. The things that I thought didn't make sense the first time through actually kind of worked well once I sat back and reflected on it, once I got rid of my book reader's angst, <laughs> which is hard to set aside, I know, but we can do it from time to time. So we'll break down all that more thoroughly during this review, of course. This is just my opening spiel, and it's just an overview. So let's get into the details. First off, welcome back to the Radio Westeros team. Hey, Lady Gwen, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Yeah, nice, nice shirt you got there. Thank you. I give a shout out to uh, Tana Ford, our friend from Westeros Whenever Podcast, who uh, made this cool drawing of us for our website. Very cool. And welcome back as well, Yoke Boy. Hi, Aziz. Really glad to be back again. Right on. Um, we're keeping you up late there in England today, but you're you're sticking with us and, and hanging hanging tough as we have fun talking about this episode. Like I said, we'll give our, as we usually do, we'll give our ratings at the end of the episode. We'll give the 8.x, 7.x, 9 possibly. Uh, but what were you guys' initial impressions of the episode as far as just, you know, not, not dialing down a rating, just how did it make you feel, you know, good, bad, positive, mixed? Yeah, s sorry. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the episode. I thought it was kind of on a par with last week. I didn't love all of it, but I thought uh, overall it was a very enjoyable episode. And th again, this season is so much better than last season. I'm feeling a lot better about Game of Thrones these days. 
Yeah, it's nice when it's nice when they do a good job. Uh, we don't have to pretend to like it or act like look for things to like. It's just there's just a lot to like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a lot to like here. Um, some things, you know, a couple weaknesses, but we'll talk about those. So overall, yeah. pretty good. Cool. All right. So as usual, we will talk about spoilers for the next episode, episode five, which we have some advanced knowledge of based on trailers, etc. But we won't spoil any of that. During this episode, we'll talk about it after the credits, as usual, so stay tuned for that if you are interested in that part of the discussion. Let's talk about some themes as we work our way towards the details. We'll look at some overarching situations. The Book of the Stranger, of course, is the title. Uh, there's reuniting, especially brother-sister type deals, Sansa and John, Asha, and, or Yara. I can't get that straight. I always just call her Asha. And since this is a book reader's podcast, you guys know who I'm talking about. But I got, even in the show-only episode with Sean, I kept calling her Asha. And I'm like, oh, wait, I mean Yara? Yeah, it's very confusing. So, compromise, though. That's another big theme. Making peace with enemies, not friends, like Tyrion says, in which Masande repeats. There's men giving up and, and women rallying. That's an important theme. Contempt. That's a big one. Underesting, underestimating one's enemies is a huge part of this episode. Multiple people pay the price for underestimating their foes, and multiple others are being set up for that exact same fate. Now, thanks to Watchner Operative Platypus, great name, by the way, we learned a few more things. The biblical book of Revelations is something of a parallel to the book of the stranger if we relate the faith of the seven to real-world Christianity, which it does have a lot of parallels to. Come and see is apparently in the book of Revelations as a line by the beast, which is signifies the devil. Ramsey is playing the role of a devil in a sense here. That's kind of neat. He says, come and see in his version of the pink letter. Judgment Day is a big part of the book of Revelations, and one famous interpretation of this is Dante's Inferno and the artwork surrounding it. Pretty much what the call's got, right? <laughs> Daenerys' Inferno instead of Dante's Inferno, but pretty similar, right? So that's neat. I like those themes. Now, I'm no biblical scholar, so, and, and our operative platypus is not either, as she told us when she sent us that message. So apologies if we're a little loose with the details of, of the Bible there, but it sounds like a loose parallel or a strong parallel either way. One other thing I want to clear up before we get into the first scene is talking about Luke Roberts, who was the role, the play, uh, the actor playing Arthur Dane. Now, we talked about how it was hard to find a guy of, of his talent and sword fighting skills. Well, there's a reason for that. He doesn't have those sword fighting skills, apparently. The guy doing the actual sword fighting was a stuntman. A sword fighting guy taught them some moves, including young Ned. His name is Vladimir Ferdick. And he's also playing the Knight's King. So that's pretty cool. So we will be seeing more of him. We haven't seen him yet, but whenever the Knight's King returns to the show, which is bound to happen then we'll know, hey, that's actually, hey, that's Arthur Dane. <laughs> so that's cool. Also, one more announcement. We're going to have a live recording at 4.30 on, sorry, 5 on, I believe I said it for 5. <laughs> I'm already forgetting what time I said it. I believe it's at for 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time next week for the show-only review, for, not for book readers, the show-only review, which I know some of you watch both. So we're announcing that here. It's already been posted on Google+, Plus, the event time. You can sign up and watch, the, watch us live while we record. And it'll get that'll, it'll, that way the episode will be a little out a little bit sooner. All right, Yoke Boy, let's talk about The Wall. I'm going to take it over to you, and you lead us into this. Okay, let's talk about The Wall. The first thing about uh, to say about The Wall is what a great melting pot we now have there. 
Over the seasons, characters have got more and more spread, spread about in Westeros and their storylines became more and more de disparate. But now we're seeing things start to come together and it's really exciting and the wall is the prime example. We now, we now have John, Sansa, Brienne, Pod, Davos, Mel, Tormund and Ed all together in close proximity at the wall and it's just so exciting because there's so many intriguing dynamics between these characters and this episode did not disappoint in that regard. And now we'll go through some of those interesting interactions. Right on. It starts with Ed and John, which is something we talked about last week. We expected that this would happen. Some sort of Ed confronting John about feeling abandoned, about how can you leave when you know it's out there? You know, I was at hard home with you. And John has a good point, though. It's not only is he, you know, just been murdered, and that's just something we don't understand how it makes you feel. But he talks about the fact that they're, the Night's Watch didn't really want him. And he only hung the ringleaders, or hanged the ringleaders. The Bowen Marsh and Alistair Thorne and Othel Yarwick and Ollie. But there were other men there for the stabbing and others probably supported it or at least didn't, you know, support their Lord Commander. So he's got a lot of, there's a lot of weight behind his argument that he's not wanted there. And it's not just that he's not wanted. It's that these people... Well, I, I would say tried to kill him, but they really did succeed in killing him. It's just that <laughs> it was undone. So it's also interesting to note that not much time has passed here. John has probably only been alive again for a day or two. He's still, he's in the early stages of being reborn. He's like, uh, I want to use the term infancy, but <laughs> rebirth infancy, but that's a bit too meta pun there. But it does give us, so we don't really know what type of person he is yet. You know, we don't know exactly how he's going to, how his outlook is going to change. This is all very new and fresh and still forming. But we have some insight onto who he is and who he's becoming. Last week, we brought up a letter from a watchner who told us of his experience being in a coma-like state, what it's like to be basically dead. We've since gotten two more somewhat similar emails. The tone is also similar as well. The common thread from these, these are very touching and personal letters, so I do thank those of you out there that sent those. They wanted to remain anonymous, all of them, so I'll certainly honor that. But the all of them said that the experience teaches you to respect life more, motivates you to really live it, get the most you can out of it. And from John's perspective, what has he done? He's done all these awful things he's had to he had to kill Corrin Halfan he had to kill Ollie he had to be betrayed by his own people he had to be you know he was rejected by the the, the female half of his family in term, meaning Catelyn and as Sansa pointed out she didn't really she was kind of crappy to him when he was growing up so you know he's kind of lost and betrayed and he doesn't want to be living, working alongside men who tried to kill him or who did kill him. So you can kind of understand where he's coming from. And it's just really hard to, to see where it's going. But is this moot? Is this all moot? Because he wants to leave. He wants to get out. He wants to go do his own thing. But he's clearly not going to. He gets pulled back in by the arrival of Sansa. So the big question here is, is this going to be similar to the book version of John? We've predicted in the past that he'd be wilder, guessing that he'll spend more time in Ghost. Is he still going to go through this existential crisis in the book, wanting to leave? Or is the wolf aggressiveness going to be driving him and he's just going to be more focused on what he wanted to do? 
along the lines of Beric, who is very focused on what he wanted to do, and Stoneheart focused on revenge. Maybe John will just be more focused on doing his duty. So it could be very different. And it's, it's, it's confused by the fact that the book timeline is so very different. Here, John is going after Ramsay after he's been resurrected. In the book, John has just decided to go after Ramsay and loudly announces it. And then he gets stabbed. And that's his final chapter. So a lot of open questions that we're not going to really try to answer. We're just going to throw them out there for you all to consider on your own. Will he be bitter like Show John? Well, how many memories will he lose? Is he going to, how much of, of the Barrack Dondarian aspect is going to fall? Obviously, Barrack was killed several times and he lost more of himself over time. John, it's hard to say. He might be dead longer, he might be dead shorter. What do you think, Yoke Boy? Well, if we expect John to also book John, rather, to also exit the Night's Watch, this could be part of his reasoning there, too. There's this technicality of shall not end until my death and the overwhelming feeling of betrayal from the Night's Watchman that could play the same role. And unless John ceases to be a POV, and I really hope that's not the case because I enjoy his POVs, we'll be able to see all of this through his thoughts and see what he thinks on all these matters. That's a really big thing to look forward to in the Winds of Winter, I think. And John will be incredibly conflicted and he will be possibly, perhaps probably, having an altered personality and memories and so on, as you mentioned. Right, and we start to see... Good points, by the way. But we start the scene with a shot of Longclaw. It's a really nice shot. You get to see the detail of the hilt. It's pretty cool. The wolf head foreshadowing his reunion with family, i.e. how Stark, the direwolf sigil, obviously. Not just reunion, but recommitment. And symbolically, it's Ed who picks Longclaw up and looks at it. And it's sort of like Ed is kind of getting in the way, saying, hey, John, you know, what about your duty? What about this commitment? What about your former commitment? The one that you were so big on before? And then they argue about it. Now, you know, given time, maybe Ed could have convinced John to stay after all. Maybe uh, maybe John would come around a bit. He didn't exactly have a plan on what to do. He just wanted to go south, you know, get warm. He makes that joke. But so that I think maybe Ed could have talked him out of given time. But bam, <laughs> Sansa arrives. <laughs> he's, everything changes there. He, he, he's reunited with Sansa, learns about Rickon, and he no longer is without a plan. Yeah, fittingly, this argument is interrupted by Sansa's arrival, but really, her arrival ends the argument for good. Ed is not going to even try to argue John out of saving his own family. And we see Ed sheepishly smile at Sansa during the meal later, so any kind of argument seemed to have been uh, quelled over there. Yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> It's, uh, I like that look he gave her there. It was kind of like, uh, maybe he was just like a little bit smitten, which, you know, that's not surprising. This is Dolores said, a brother of the Night's Watch. He doesn't see women too often. And here comes Sansa. So, hmm. Anyway, I'm going to guess Sansa, by the way, with John's backing. This is going to promise to help the wall once they get once they deal with Ramsay, and that will be like a compromise of sorts. She's like, "Look, I'm leaving. I'm not, you know, but I will. I'm not going to just abandon you entirely. We're still going to, you know, once we take care of the situation in the north, you know, we're not going to just leave you. We're not just going to leave you, Ed. We're not going to leave you and and the, the Night's Watch to defend the realm by yourselves. I think something's going to be worked out along those lines. I, I don't know exactly what, but I, I, they're not just going to abandon Ed. That's not how it's going to end. I don't think. So 
I think there'll be some sort of, look, man, we'll be back. We'll be back. Don't worry about it. Just let us deal with these Boltons. Well, this Bolton. There's just the one now. <laughs> so speaking of John and Sansa, now this is, it's, it's, it gives us, it's so funny that this is such an important reuniting when these characters never really had anything between them before, but it still was really powerful. Lady, go and tell us your thoughts on this. Oh, this was amazing for I mean I I cried every time I've watched it so far I just I my, I might start crying now talking about it mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very emotional um D&D gotta give them all the credit because they've given us something that um George hasn't and probably won't for a long time yet that's a stark reunion um Personally, I think the John and Sansa reunion will be the first one that we do get to see in the books and that it's the one that's most clearly telegraphed on the page. Uh, but it's I do feel like it's a long ways off. This is the first time we've seen John and Sansa on page together, um, definitely in the show and even in the books. Um, John's uh, POV at King Robert's welcoming feast was the last time they were actually together uh they weren't interacting though john was just observing her so it's been a long time coming although they do appear in each other's thoughts throughout the books john thinks of sansa as my sister numerous times uh asserts her rights to winterfell to stannis when stannis offers him winterfell he kind of stands up and he says now it belongs to my sister sansa and he really actually has a number i looked at them today of quite uh, tender memories of Sansa, including one that says he found himself thinking of his sisters, perhaps because he dreamed of them last night. Sansa would call this, this being the snowfall beyond the wall, uh, an enchantment and tears would fill her eyes at the wonder of it. So he does have these kind of sweet memories of her, while for her part, most of us will remember that Sansa thinks of John mostly as her half-brother, or her bastard brother when she does think of him, but she does think of him on quite a few occasions. She remembers John up at the wall. She prays for him in the sept during uh, before the Battle of Blackwater. And then in A Feast for Crows, when he's mentioned by Miranda Royce in that kind of scene where Miranda might be twigging something about who Elaine uh, Stone really is, Sansa shows kind of a more, you know, like maybe she's grown a little bit in the way she thinks about John because uh, it says she had not thought of John in ages. He was only her half brother, but still, with Rob and Bran and Rick undead, John Snow was the only brother that remained to her. And she goes on to think, I'm a bastard too now, just like him. Oh, it would be so sweet to see him once again. So she's kind of grown, you know, yeah. In that. <laughs> Yeah. Kind of feeling of closeness towards him. So. D&D gave us that sweetness yeah. after all. <laughs> How nice. So it's the big differences there that's clear from, from that is as great as that is in making those comparisons. You see how different they are book to show in terms of the circumstances, not necessarily their attitudes, which I think those are similar. I think the way John and Sansa react to each other is probably pretty similar to how they would react to each other in the books. But... The details of their lives, as bad as they both are, are significantly different, especially with the information available to them. Both book versions of Sansa and John don't know about their brothers being alive, and Arya is just a mystery to them entirely. 
Sansa gets to fill John in on all that because she knows that they're alive. And from both from Theon and Brienne, respectively. So this is all done off screen. They fill each other on all these things. John presumably talks about how he was dead, about the White Walkers. Uh, and Sansa would, you know, likewise fill him in on the fact that their family is more alive than they thought by a lot. <laughs> Her marriage to Tyrion, time with Littlefinger. Now, it's too bad in a sense we didn't get to hear them chat about all that, but that was a long list of things they had to catch up on. So it would be, you know, it would have been a long conversation for TV, I think. So it's, I think the way they handled it is just fine. What, what about you, Yoke Boy? What did you get from that little bit? Well, we're talking about things that have been a long time coming, right? It's really great to see Sansa, who has previously been this pawn in other people's games, people using her for their, her own, for their own ends. And now she's finally gaining autonomy and becoming a player herself. And we see her making her own moves and she's got ambitions. She knows what she wants and she's trying to make it happen. And it's great to see this part of her character character development after the kind of horrors of last season it's it's been a long time coming yeah and she's leading basically leading john at this point she's john just wants to give up and that's one of those themes we were talking about he wants to quit he wants to give up but once it's his family she's like look you can't just we can't you're not quitting now right and he's like yeah you got me i'm in <laughs> he's committed and once uh, they pull him back in so let's talk about Davos and Melisandre. As Yoke Boy said, there's a lot of different characters interacting at the wall right now. It's really interesting. And some of these things we didn't even nat nat necessarily see coming, even though they were kind of obvious, especially Brienne getting involved with Melisandre and Davos. Not only did we not talk about that last week, not only did we mention the pause was coming, I don't think anyone even mentioned it to us in the comments or tweeted at us or anything. And usually when we miss something, you, you watchers catch it quickly because you guys are really smart too and and you know you, you're expecting us to talk about certain things and if we don't you, you you know you bring it to our attention and i don't think anyone even mentioned that to us and it's just this this whole brienne melisandre thing is really interesting but it doesn't start with that it starts with davos confronting melisandre now yoke boy tell us about that yeah really glad that they're following up the burning of shireen and um really pleased that Davos hasn't kind of forgotten and D&D &D are just going to sweep that issue under the carpet and pretend that Davos and Shireen weren't close or something. Uh, you know, it's coming to the fore now. There could be serious consequences for Mel later in the season, I think. I get the sense that this story isn't yet done with the with what happened with Shireen. I, I think we're, we're being show, shown this conflict for a reason. And a watcher called Lady Storch wrote to us with an interesting idea that Davos might find Shireen's carved stag that he made for her by a pile of ashes. Remember, he made her that really intricate car carved stag just before she was burnt. And then he could really work out what happened to her if he finds this by the ashes. Shireen might have taken the stag, you know, onto the onto the pyre but she could have possibly dropped it on the way or something so i think it's an interesting idea to be considered and it makes you think and yeah like i said i think there's really good reason to be concerned with mel's welfare not not now not in the next couple of episodes but towards the end of the season 
um, with this undercurrent of Shireen's dem- demise still looming, there still might be a confrontation later. Remember that Davos has already tried to kill Mel before, I think that was in season two, was it, or season three? I don't remember, but yeah, it was right before he gets thrown in jail. <laughs> uh, or right, yeah, right around that time. Anyway, another little undercurrent to that scene I thought was very subtle was that during this argument, it's the second important argument interrupted in this first scene where, you know, John is talking to Ed and the horn interrupts them, Sansa's arrival, which was really sneaky the way that was done, as Yoke Boy pointed out. And it sort of happens here as well as Brienne and, or as rather as Melisandre and Davos are talking about Shireen, Brienne comes and interrupts them. This is actually a nod to a device George uses himself quite a bit, which is something really interesting or important is, is being said and an interruption happens before we get the full story. It's, it's happened several times. There's a, some very, there's some key ones where there's a history lesson being told that gets interrupted. Of course, that particularly annoys me, <laughs> but in a good way. More like a, dang it, George, you tease. So it's an interesting possibility that they were giving a bit of a nod there by using the interruptions as a, as a device. But in any case, this conflict between Mel and Davos, I think, is interesting. I don't think that the, inter- the conflict between Brienne and Mel and Davos is, is going to end in anything violent. It could. It could cause some conflict. But I feel like since Sansa has Brienne sworn to her... And Mel has basically sworn herself to John. Davos is kind of like a Ronin right now. He's a masterless samurai of sorts. But he's pretty much... I, I, I think it's pretty likely he's going to align himself with his Stark cause. There's not much else for him to do. And he's just a good good guy that wants to help out and wants to fight the others. So I don't see that they could have a major conflict between the two. Uh, given that they're pretty much on the same team now. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I... Th- I think you're probably right, but from a dramatic standpoint, um, there is a really interesting triangle emerging with the three of them, because they do all have reasons to strongly dislike each other, but as you said, here they find themselves all effectively fighting for the same cause, so there there's a potential there for some at least very interesting dynamics between them. Right on. And Davos can help John in a number of ways, like as a diplomat or getting other Northerners on his side, etc. That's something he's got experience with working for Stannis. Brienne, it's possible she could do a similar sort of thing, but she doesn't have that kind of experience. And Northerners kind of look down on women fighters, so she might be better used in a different role. Something to help Sansa, maybe just being a bodyguard or heading south, maybe. We've guessed that she might be sent out to continue continue looking for Arya. Who knows, but... It's possible that given this potential conflict between these helper characters, they might be separated. Sansa and John might be like, look, we don't want, we gotta separate Davos and Brienne <laughs> from each other. Let's send them in different directions so they don't keep fighting each other or what have you. Now, Melisandre, how she can help John is a much bigger question. Now, watching her, Ben Jay wonders if she could send a shadow baby to help Rickon with, with John's help, you know, providing the. Uh, Shadow baby batter, so to speak. <laughs> now, yeah, that was gross. But uh, there's a bit of a hint of this happening in the past, right? With with Melisandre asking John if he's a virgin. Like, that never went anywhere, right? That was just a weird question that came in. We're like, what the hell is that all about? But I think that might have been what the hell that was all about, was setting up the possibility of shadow babies. And in the books, 
Mel thinks of how the wall would make any shadow she makes extremely powerful. She says, such shadows that I unleash here, would, uh, you know, no one could stand against them. So I feel we haven't seen the last of the shadow babies in the books. And I think there's also a strong chance that's true for the show. Uh, nothing has given me any sense that this will happen this season. I haven't seen anything that points me in that direction. It's just the stuff that happened last season plus the books. So don't really have any evidence for it, but I, I think there's a strong chance. It's just a really cool thing. And yeah, Shadow Babies. Hey, let's have more of that, right? <laughs> See what they're all about. Okay, so let's uh, a brief chat about Brienne and Tormund. <laughs> Bearmond? See, yeah, I got my Tormund shirt on today and his Argyle sweater. Looking, looking fierce and, and well-dressed, of course. Uh, Yoke Boy, what did you think of this scene? <laughs> Or this, this interaction in general. <laughs> I loved this scene. I know that a lot of watchers really liked it too. It was such a nice surprise and it was very amusing. It was actually my favourite moment from the episode, I think. <laughs> uh, especially when Ed's, Ed's the uh, shot of Ed's face, when he saw Tormund trying to do his flirting <laughs> with Brienne. It was just so funny. It was played really well. I laughed out loud. And after all the smiles between Sansa and John earlier, this was another kind of great relief and this more more of a comical moment too, but another kind of relief moment, given all the darkness that's been running through the show for like the last season. I I thought it, you know, it, it was great to have these lighter moments at last. And I also thought that Ed was really well acted like I said, and a shout out to the actor who we never mention. He's called Ben Crompton. I've got to say that he is a brilliant Dolores Ed. I really love the way he plays him. He looks the part. He acts the part. Totally agree. And I thought it's funny that people are talking about this this flirtatiousness. And it's it seems kind of one-sided, though, doesn't it? I mean, the look, <laughs> Tormund gives Brienne the look, and Brienne reaches for her sword. That's the first <laughs> interaction they have. <laughs> And then at dinner, you know, he's doing his, like, sexy chicken-eating thing. And she's just kind of... Her facial acting was really hilarious, too. She's just like, okay, then. Kind of looks down at her food and is like, well, yeah, that's gross, too. Everything is gross. <laughs> and, yeah, that was what I was referring to at the, with my intro spiel about the brilliant, you know, comedic acting without any dialogue. Just great facial acting. So that's another thing that a TV show can do that a, that a book can't do. So props to the show there. Props to the actors. All very good work all around. Okay, the pink letter. Compare and contrast. Uh, we, we're not going to read each individual version of it. The show version is pretty similar. In a way, the threat that that Ramsey puts in the letter. Okay, assuming Ramsey wrote the letter. Let's just assume Ramsey wrote the letter. That's a whole different debate. Just compare the two as if Ramsey wrote them both. Because e even if the book one wasn't written by Ramsey, it was meant to seem like it came from Ramsey, so we can still compare it on those grounds. The big difference is the, the teeth that the threat has. In the book, it's a par pretty powerful threat, but it's just Mance Rayder as a captive, and it's the threat of what he's going to do to John and the Wildlings and the Watch, not what he's going to do to Mance Rayder. John is, isn't terribly concerned about Mance Rayder, probably. But in the show, it's Rickon. That's a much more powerful threat, and Sansa convinced Sansa doesn't have any doubts that he's telling the truth. That's something that John was like, "Well, this is just a letter. Maybe it's a lie." And of course, that's what Tormund says in the in the book. So that's a nod there to, "Well, this is just writing. You know, I could write whatever I wanted. You know, just make it true." So 
Uh, Lady Gwen, tell us what you thought about this version of the letter. Well, along the lines of what I mentioned about John's sort of you know tender thoughts of Sansa, the in the book the pink letter gives him all these sort of warm fuzzy thoughts about his siblings, especially Arya, who you know he reads this letter and he thinks that Arya's been married off to Ramsay by the Lannisters. It's important to remember, even though the letter says you know I have man's captive, it also makes clear that. Arya's kind of among the missing. So there is a certain level of anxiety, I think, on John's part uh, as far as what's happened with his little sister. He could very well be afraid that, you know, Ramsay is going to find her if he doesn't act. Um, I have a passage here of what exactly he thinks after he reads the letter that leads him right into his decision. It says... He thought of Rob, with snowflakes melting in his hair. Kill the boy and let the man be born. He thought of Bran, clambering up a tower wall, agile as a monkey. Of Rickon's breathless laughter. Of Sansa, brushing out lady's coat and singing to herself. You know nothing, Jon Snow. He thought of Arya, her hair as tangled as a bird's nest. I made him a warm cloak from the skin of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want my bride back. I want my bride back. So, of course, the the letter doesn't repeat that three times, but I think the repetition of that phrase in John's point of view underscores his anxiety about Arya. Um, he also does, you know, mentions Mance. And I think that the, that is how he arrived at that we're coming for you, bastard. That, you know, he's something we've mentioned a few times, and I think we all hoped the show would give us, and basically it has. Not exactly those words, but here we go. And that's something that both show and book have done here, and it, it harkens back to <clears throat> how much John is like Ned, even though we're all pretty sold on the fact that no matter which version of, even if you don't believe in R plus L equals J, which we're all sold on, I don't, no one... Very few people out there believe that Ned is actually John's father, uh, sire, but he raised him. That makes him his father, whether he's his sire or not. And Ned and John have a lot in common, whether he's his sire or not. That's just very clear, and this is a perfect example of that. John, just like Ned, puts duty first unless family is involved. And once family is involved, that becomes the higher priority, and... Just like Ned was willing to sacrifice his honor and, and falsely uh, accuse himself or admit that he, you know, schemed against the true king, just and he did it to save Sansa. John, you know, questionably breaking his Night's Watch vows to go save his family uh, from the night, you know, as a member of the Night's Watch, and he, of course, in the very beginning, John runs off before Jorah, or rather Gior, forgives him for running off. He runs off when he hears about what's happened to his father at the beginning or at the end of Game of Thrones. So a lot of neat parallels there between John's actions and Ned's actions and the motivation for those actions, which I think is really nicely done. Both show and book have done that well so far. All right, let's move a bit south to the instigator of all this, Ramsay and Osha. We get a very classic villain posture there of the old apple peeling there that's a that's probably i think that's probably on tv tropes the villain eating the apple peeling the apple slowly it's just a sinister kind of thing to do <laughs> now 
throughout this episode, of course, we're going to bring up the underestimation and misdirection theme, which is going on a lot. And in this case, Osha kind of underestimated Ramsey a little bit, though, to be fair, she was pretty much seizing her what was probably her only opportunity. She wasn't like, like, well, I'll wait for a better chance to stab him rather than when she's sitting in his lap. That doesn't, doesn't really get much better than that, does it? But really, Ramsey set her up. She thought he wanted sex from her because he had her bathed. She says this. And, but no, it was sport for him. He didn't need info from her. He didn't want to sleep with her. He didn't want to torture her, apparently, which I guess we can be thankful for that, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of sad to see her exit stage left so quickly. She didn't really get much screen time after vanishing with, uh, with, with Rick on so long ago. I'm guessing Book Ramsey would have done this a bit differently. Um, but will Book Ramsey be faced with the situation at all? Probably not. I don't think. It's no sure thing that Book Ramsey will ever even be Lord Bolton. I mean, let alone capturing Osha and Rickon. So I don't, I don't know that we'll get a version of this. What did you guys think about this scene? It was kind of quick. It didn't, I don't know that it advanced the plot much. It just, it told us a few things, but it's kind of just Ramsey being Ramsey, huh? Yeah, to be honest, Aziz, I've been suffering from Ramsey fatigue for what seems like a long time now. He seems to be in just about every episode, and I just can't really wait for him to die. I found Joffrey to be a really captivating, dynamic, and interesting villain, but I really don't have the same kind of feeling of loving to hate this villain Ramsey, I just kind of hate him. I think he kind of makes the show unbearable at times. And I really can't wait for him to be out of the show for, for good. I think it'll be this season. I don't think he lasts the season. I really hope that's the case. Um, it'll be satisfying, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe he'll linger a bit longer. Maybe he'll die early next season. But can anyone actually see him being part of the fight against the White Walkers, being part of that? In I don't know. It doesn't seem likely. And for that reason, I have other people on the chopping block, but I'll talk, to, we'll, we'll speak to that later. Lady Gwen, what about your thoughts on this scene? So this scene, I gotta tell you, I couldn't even rewatch it because mm. uh, I'm, I'm sharing that, that Ramsey fatigue. I, <laughs> I really like Natalia and so did George. So, you know, given that sort of dialogue that had gone on around that, where he's going to give her a bigger role in the books now because he liked so much what Natalia did with, with the character. Uh, I thought maybe bringing her back was a hint that we'd get to see a little more of her. <laughs> so it was disappointing. In hindsight, the scene was really well set up. Like you said, he um, he totally set her up. He, had, he put the knife right there. You know, he knew exactly what she was going to do all along. I absolutely should have seen it coming. Um, but I'm just so tired of him winning. <laughs> and this barrage of atrocities is having, like an opposite effect because I, I have to tune it out. So, um, you know, I just, I, I guess in the end it, all, it, it might be all better when he dies. But I think at this point, I'm just going to feel relief instead of happiness. I, I don't know. <laughs> so, but beyond death, I hope, you know, beyond him dying, which I certainly hope is this season or early next at the latest, I do hope that there's something incredibly karmic coming for him. And that so that will kind of redeem this storyline. Um, I hope, you know, we see the results of his arrogance. Otherwise, all of this is going to kind of seem gratuitous. Yeah. And of course, the show does 
you know, verge into gratuitous territory from time to time, perhaps often, although less so this season, I suppose. But yeah, uh, I think the one of the things with Ramsey is he's he's a bad guy, but he hasn't done a lot of like things that you would think make him a formidable villain other than that he's, you know, he's dangerous and, and violent, but he hasn't like outthought anyone for the most part. He, you know, his father, we, we've talked about how Roos and the books probably won't be so easy to take out. And yeah, so I don't know, Ramsey, I'm, I'm kind of with you guys. I like the actor a lot and I'm, I think that the storyline is solid, but indeed they, they probably have put a little too much Ramsey on screen. But we'll see what happens. Now, uh, Watcher, Watchner Tatenda points out that in the Umber Rickon scene from episode three, there's the flayed man carved into the fireplace a bunch of times. It's like a mural in the fireplace. Maybe a little bit of a uh, hint of foreshadowing there. Ramsey does seem to be driving his own house into the flames, <laughs> in a sense. So maybe we'll see that <clears throat> happen sooner rather than later. Okay, so let's uh, let's move. We're going to move on to the veil, but first I will give a quick shout out to our Patreon sellsword captains, starting with Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. That's their motto. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, is Captain of the Red Tide. Their motto is resistance is futile. Garion Pike is wielder of Grave Embrace of Valyrian Steel Axe, and Captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's kiss is eternal. Captain Darton is Captain of the Mother's Men. Kyron Colsbane is captain of the Stone Shields. The torrent breaks upon the stone. Captain Kithic Deadeye is our newest member of the group. He is of the Scarlet Longbows, and their motto is Pierced by Darkness. I've also added a new Patreon title for people who want to designate themselves as Ironborn Captains. You can sign up there, name your own ship, and have fun with that. Check us out at historyofwesteros.com. Patreon link's on the right sidebar there. Okay, back to it. Let's talk about the veil. There's some more dialogue-free humor right at the start. Robert Aaron doing all sorts of funny faces as he's trying to sight the bo- I bet that kid has is we're supposed to think he has weak eyesight perhaps. The way he just kind of closes his eye, opens it, moves his head out. It's like he's having trouble seeing the target, but it was pretty funny anyway around. It's not our first time seeing Robert Aaron be incredibly inept at something to do with weapons or just inept in general. But more important is the fact that despite the terrible shot, there's an underlying theme here. Robert looks at Bronze Jan Royce for approval after shooting this terrible shot, which he gets in the form of a forced smile. Now, to me, this is meant to remind us of who this boy lord really is and what defines him. He basically has no parents, and the upbringing he did have from the one parent who was around for a little while was pretty terrible. His need for approval, combined with being badly spoiled and the perils of those things in proximity to an expert manipulator with great ambition, Littlefinger, of course. Littlefinger has him completely and utterly in his grasp, and he completely and utterly outmaneuvers Bronze Jan Royce using that, you know, control over Robert Aaron. So, Lady Gwen, what about you? What do you think of this scene? Uh, I thought it was a pretty solid scene. I did think it was absolutely hilarious when sweet robin said throw him out the moon door and i literally stopped and went i looked and you could see mountains in the distance and i assume the eerie is up there somewhere and i was like so are the guards supposed to just start walking like get him up i just thought that was funny and um but it, it just does it highlights the kids kind of tenuous grip on reality doesn't it yeah. Combined with all the things you mentioned about him. Poor little rich boy. Yeah. 
Yeah, he does seem to have his head in the clouds. Uh-huh. <laughs> ah, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that last time Littlefinger met Sweet Robin on screen was when Sansa came to the Eerie, I think. And Littlefinger gave him a small crystal falcon, if you remember. So Robert is obviously very easy to win over being the, the, the spoiled child that you described as ease. And this time, he kind of upgrades the gift, doesn't he? And gives him a real, real falcon to his glee. Robert must be one of the easiest chess pieces to manoeuvre in Littlefinger's entire game. <laughs> yeah. I think that it's interesting, too, that the real falcon, him giving him a falcon is sort of symbolic of him controlling uh, Robert. Because it's the falcon is the sigil of House Aaron. But it's Littlefinger who's providing him the actual animal. I think that's kind of interesting. It kind of shows how he subverted House Aaron in a lot of ways. Now, so we're getting what we expected. The Vale Knights are heading north. This is an opportunity, perhaps, for maybe Ramsay to do something intelligent and see this coming and maybe prevent them from coming. But I don't think that's going to happen because they probably aren't going to ride up through the neck, which would be where he could stop them. I think they're going to go by ship. Uh, I don't have any, I don't know why. I'm, I'm basically just guessing that though, because Littlefinger's, or they'll use Littlefinger's teleporter, which maybe is, have been outfitted for an entire army. But we'll just have to see how that pans out. So Bronzion learns the hard way. Uh, the man who rules the king rules the kingdom. Now, Robert Aaron is no king, but the point is the same, right? So let's head to where another weak ruler is being manipulated. Instead of uh, Littlefinger having Robert Aaron all to himself, this is different in King's Landing because quite a few people are trying to influence King Tommen. Lion claws, rose thorns, and sparrow talons are ripping the poor kid in many directions at once. Yeah. So King's Landing, a lot happening here, really clever things happening here. Subtext, underlying themes, plots within plots. This is one of my favorite parts of the episode because there's sneaky things happening. And I um, think I've figured some of it out. I think we've together as a group figured some of these other things out. And I'm, I'm curious to see if, we, if we're right. So let's talk about them. Marjorie and the High Sparrow. This seems to be kind of going along sort of the way we expected. But with a little twist. He keeps trying to win her over. That's kind of what we expected. Maybe trying to rule through her a little bit. Just kind of like he's trying to rule through Tommen. And while he ignores Jamie. Uh, because Jamie isn't a path to ruling, controlling Jamie is both not going to happen and not really a path to power. So Marjorie's playing along a bit. She seems to like encourage him to tell his story, but we see from the next scene when she's with Loras that she's not fooled. She sees that she kind of understands his game or at least realizes that he's playing a game and doesn't and wants to try to do what she can. In the books, this is different because we just don't have much insight into Marjorie's ordeal. She's not a POV. She's not on screen as much. She's younger. We presume that she's a bit, because she's younger, that she's a bit more naive, maybe not as strong a player as show Marjorie is, though not without some skills. But this Marjorie and Loras scene is where a lot of this comes out. York Boy, what did you think of, of Marjorie and Loras? It was kind of surprising to see Loras so just given up there, huh? Yeah, Marjorie who we thought was really beaten down, seems to have some more inner fortitude, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. A lot more than Loras at this point. She tried to convince Loras that they, they've got a chance, you know. She's 
she's grabbing hold of hope, which he just doesn't have. But he, he just wants her to do whatever it takes to make his situation stop. He's got no fight left in, in him whatsoever. And all he wants is for it to end. He is truly broken at this point. So what does it mean when he says he wants it to end? Does he mean he wants to be put out of his misery? Does he want to die? Or does he just, is he just that hopeless that he just is just asking for it to end in any way possible? Has, and along those lines, has he been tortured? Those are, we can't really answer those questions. We can, you know, you guys can give your opinions, but those are questions I have that we don't really know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Whether he's been tortured or whether he's actually wants to die or, or is it just, uh, is it not clear? I thought, you know, I got the impression that he's probably been tortured physically, possibly, definitely emotionally. Um, another thing that I think was really clear in this scene was the the highlight of uh, female power because we saw over and over again the women, you know, Sansa and Yara and Marjorie and, of course, culminating with Danny, really stepping <laughs> forward and owning things and men kind of stepping back and on a sliding scale shall, of kind of not <laughs> not being present uh, for various reasons. But uh, I just thought this was an interesting continuation of that theme here. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I guess we'll have to wait and see. There, there wasn't there wasn't any obvious signs of torture, but the way he acted made me really think, oh, geez, he's, he's been deprived at the very least. Maybe he isn't. It seems like whatever they're doing to him is more severe than what's been done to Marjorie, which makes sense, I suppose, given, you know, the, the severity of their relative crimes, according to the faith, anyway. Um, she, Marjorie's only guilty of lying about what Loris did, where Loris is actually guilty of what he did, which I don't suppose we would recognize as a crime, but the High Sparrow certainly does, and he's in charge, so that's that. <laughs> Tommen and Cersei and Pycelle is where we're going next. This is an interesting scene in... On Monday, Sean, our show reviewer, talked about the interesting camera work in the scene, how clever it was. Now, we have Pycelle warning Tommen about how precarious the situation is. He warns against antagonizing them, which later is exactly what Cersei and Jamie plan on doing, in which Olena and Kevin go along with. So it's funny because we have this important, you know, prophetic line delivered by a character that everyone is is just despises. They just don't they think Pycelle is this doddering old, creepy old man that... that you know, he's kind of maybe, he's past his prime, he's he's a bit of a whiner, and he seems a bit spineless. But I think he's right, I think he's 100% right. <laughs> and Cersei is completely dismissive of, this, dismissive of this, though, and Tommen seems to agree, though he is a bit, or rather he agrees with Pycelle to a certain degree, though he's not really concerned about blood in the streets and civil war, he's more worried about Marjorie. And... From a little kid's perspective, that makes some sense. But really, the big picture is what Pycelle is pointing to. And again, I think he's totally right. We'll see. And we'll explain this in a bit more detail here. A couple of different possibilities for what is happening. Tommen trembles a bit as he prepares to tell his mother something big. But we don't hear it, which leaves room for doubt. Part of the cleverness of this scene, giving us multiple options. I think a lot of people immediately suspected trickery. Like, well, maybe Cersei isn't saying what Tommen said. And that's where, my main, that's where my head went first. But upon reflection, I had a different idea. So let's explain these ideas. There's two of them. There's Basically, it revolves on who is actually doing the tricking. Whether it's Cersei or whether it's somebody else. They stem from what might have been said by Tommen. Yoke boy, take us away. 
break down these, these theories for us. Okay, first of all, uh, before we talk about the poss possible trickery, there's always the possibility that there's no tricking, that uh, yes, Marjorie is being set up for a walk of shame, and Cersei is joining forces with the Tyrells, and everything is a, as, as it appears. But as Aziz said, there are two ideas of the tr uh, trick going on, so let's look at those. First of all, Cersei could be tricking the Tyrells into fighting against the Faith in order to damage both parties. That means that Tommen never actually mentioned there's a walk of shame for Marjorie lined up and it's a Cersei invention. This seems to be a plausible idea. Let me jump in just for a second. Are they, because if you guys remember, the way it's spelled out is Kevin is ordered to stand down while the Tyrell army comes in to do the, the dirty work. So it will it could look like the Lannisters aren't involved. They're like, hey, we didn't do that. you know, And it, all the blame falls on the Tyrells. So that, that's why that looks that way. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, your boy. No, that, this seems like a plausible idea, doesn't it? And Cersei would have good motives to want both sides diminished. Uh, but someone on Reddit takes it a step further and suggests that Tommen found out from the High Sparrow about Joffrey's death being at the hands of the Tyrells. And that's what he told Cersei. And now she wants immediate revenge. And while I think it's an interesting idea, it might be a little bit too complex for the show, I think. I don't know if they can manage that kind of line of conspiracy. But anyway, it's a really good idea. And the other idea, and this is one that Aziz has been talking to me about, is that the High Sparrow is baiting Cersei and Olenna and all of them together. The High Sparrow is leaking information to Tommen because he knows that he's going to tell his mother. And so the High Sparrow can play them all like pawns in a way. Is it really plausible that the High Sparrow expected Tommen to keep a really big secret from his mother after what, what he's recognised about the love of those two? That Marjorie the Queen has to do a walk of shame? And isn't sharing secrets with someone one of the most classic and obvious tricks used by kind of con men and the like to gain trust? Doesn't Tommen seem like a really obvious candidate for manipulation with these kind of secrets and so on? Yes, I think the answer to all those questions is a resounding yes. Tommen is easily manipulated. There's almost no way in my mind the High Sparrow would think that Tommen would actually keep that secret after watching his own mother go through that same treatment. And why would he want to keep that a secret? Only for some reason, only for something like this. Like, it's, I, I don't know. I like the idea for many reasons, such as how well it fits in this theme, too. It's contempt-based underestimation of one's enemies. A very strong theme of this episode. Cersei speaks to the, high, to the small council in this manner. She says... You all hate these fanatics as much as I do. And referring to the High Sparrow's dirty peasant hands, you know, contempt is a familiar display coming from Cersei. So it works really well if it's fake or not. You just We're all just very familiar with Cersei being contemptuous and underestimating people. Olena falling for this, though, really sells it to us as an audience because we expect her to be more cunning and we don't expect her to fall into a trap. But even whichever of these theories you prefer, she's falling for one of them. Either Cersei's manipulated her successfully or High Sparrow has. Either way, she seems to have taken the bait. So, it's funny. Again, we come back to Pycelle. Yeah. Ironically, Pycelle is the one who's giving the best advice. So don't antagonize them. But since he's repeating it to Tommen in that private scene, it probably means that no one's really listening to him in the small council. 
So uh, Marjorie might be the only one who can see the depths of the High Sparrow scheming, but there's no one that can listen to her. And uh, we kind of wonder if her warning or her views might be similar to Picel's. <laughs> That's uh, funny. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Uh, so, you know, he Picel says don't antagonize them, and then they go ahead and plan to do exactly the opposite of what he says. <laughs> Tyrell army marching into the city? Kind of antagonistic, wouldn't you say? <laughs> very, very much so. Even if Mace Tyrell is leading that army looking all silly, <laughs> it'll still look antagonistic. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So, what is this? Again, as, since, as a book reader's show here, what does all this tell us about what's coming in The Winds of Winter? Well, the book High Sparrow is less subtle, but very cunning still, and far bloodier, frankly. Which is, you know, the, sh the book and show sometimes compete with each other to be bloodier and more brutal. But the, definitely the book High Sparrow is more bloody. He's, he's won that title so far. It's possible that the Faith's ultimate role in A Song of Ice and Fire will be more related to the Aegon VI plot or Daenerys and her landing rather than the Tyrell-Lannister alliance, although it could involve all those things. The, the Faith is too big a, 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 a faction to not play multiple roles like that. To me, I think that what might really be a problem is if Danny has a horde of Relorist followers that, that believe she's Azor Ahai and they show up in Westeros, and then you have two different groups of fanatics just on the same continent who all believe in very strongly in, well, there's Ellis. You don't have to really go any farther than that. So that could be bad. Faith Milton versus Relorists, and then you have all these Dothraki. I don't suppose the Faith Milton are going to be happy with Dothraki savages. That's probably what they would call them, right? So, I mean, people don't even really like foreigners in Westeros, and these are, the, you know, from their point of view, these are worse than foreigners. They're invading foreigners who worship a horse god, and, you know, it, they're, there's just, you can just see the prejudice coming. <laughs> so, now, Kevin sort of keeps his wits during all this, but is still convinced because, well, they play on his deepest fears. They talk about Lancel, and they, they sell this to him via his children. He's the only one that seems to have strong doubts, but he's, the doubts aren't strong enough. He says, and this is the same for book Kevin too, which is, I think is interesting. Both book and show Kevin are extremely concerned about the potential for an all-out war between the faith and the crown, civil war in the streets, that sort of thing. Olena dismisses this like, well, yeah, well, that's going to happen no matter what we do, but better them than us. So that's where this is headed. This is headed for major blood, major brutality, I think. Um, and some version of the book I think will be similar. I think maybe the, the, the situation will be different, but the end result will be similar. Faith Milton getting bloody with one or more other factions. The Lannisters will be involved some way. Anyway, speaking of book Kevin, I, on the day the show premiered this season, I released an episode called Aziz versus Chapter, and it's that chapter that I break down. So if you want to hear more about Kevin, go check that out. Okay, and now we will take another short ad break. We'll be right back to move on to Essos. For those of you who listen regularly or watch regularly and don't, and that ad, when I talk about an ad break and it just skips right to what I'm talking next, there isn't always an ad there, and sometimes you know, some of you have ad blockers. So I just wanted to clear that up in case it's confusing. You're like, what, what break? That wasn't even a second. Well, that's that. Sometimes there'll be ads there, sometimes there won't. If you have ad blockers, well, there probably won't be one there ever. So that's that. Just wanted to explain that in case it was confusing. Okay, Essos. Lots happening in Essos, though we aren't as spread out. There was no Arya this time for the first time this season. Lots happening at Slaver's Bay. Tyrion meets with two important factions. 
Varus is completely silent the whole time. He's there, but he doesn't say anything. Masande and Grey Worm, anything but silent. They have a lot to say. Like good teammates, they present a unified front to the delegations. They don't act like there's they're, you know, they don't they don't act disorganized and disunited, which is an important thing. But once the uh, other people are out of are away, Grey Worm and Masande bitterly challenge Tyrion on his decisions. Yoke boy, kind of break this down for us. Okay, so here Tyrion plays the role of diplomat. I don't know if you've noticed, but he's almost like an acting hand, isn't he? Yeah, it's very similar. He is. He's, he's fulfilling the role of an acting hand. And last week we saw Varys showing his skills as the new Master of Whisperers. So, so we can actually see the nucleus of a functioning government for, forming, can't we? With the Hand and the Master of Whisperers. It's starting to look a bit more like what King's Landing used to look like. It, it, it's often said that Danny is a better conqueror than ruler. And I think one of the main factors is that she wasn't set up to rule. She's inexperienced due to her age, and she conquered Slaver's Bay very quickly and suddenly without a really good plan for the long haul. She she often acts on instinct, doesn't she? We see that time and again. She does amazing things for herself and her people in the short term, but it's not always so great in the long term. We're left to wonder how things would have panned out if Danny had had Tyrion and Varys in acting like this in her corner from the very beginning in Marine, as they both are clearly very adept at their governing roles. Yeah, early on she had she had Missande a bit, but Missande doesn't have a lot of government experience either. And other than that, she just had a bunch of guys who were fighters. She had Jorah, she had Barristan, she had Grey Worm. And Dario, I mean, just guys who were first and foremost warriors. Those guys are not very helpful with ruling. They had some good advice here and there, but mostly, yeah, Varus, I almost said Varian and Tyrus. Varus and Tyrion are clearly on another level with that regard. Now, the argument itself between Grey Worm Missandei and Tyrion, I almost said Tyrius again or something. <laughs> slavery idealism versus slavery realism, you might say. But which side of the argument is which? At first, it's clear, based on how it's presented, it's clear that Tyrion is the realistic one and Missandei and Grey Worm are the idealistic ones. But when Grey Worm tells Tyrion that they will use him, meaning the masters, not the other way around, it makes you think, it made me think anyway, maybe he and Missandei are right, that peace and diplomacy are not actually realistic here. And so maybe Tyrion is being idealistic, thinking that he can work with or even manipulate the slavers at all. He just They're too good at that, or they're going to be the ones to play you. Does Tyrion really think they won't take any opportunity they can to restore slavery? Well, you know, maybe he does. Despite the apparent flimsiness of the arrangement, it does strike us that Tyrion has basically given them nothing. He threatened them, um, despite the gifts of the girls and gentle language, uh, offered them threats. He said they wouldn't get a better offer, and the alternative is clear, despite being unsaid. Agree to this or die. Yeah, if it's not the Unsullied, Watchner Leo suggests Tyrion could send the dragons at them. I don't know if he could learn to do that, but sending the Unsullied would be fearsome enough. So in that sense, it's quite clever. Tyrion is demanding something, but offering nothing. So anything the slavers give him, whether he gives them time, whether he whether they actually cut off some or all their support to the Sons of the Harpy, it's a win. And all he gave them was talk. 
So that's actually, you know, maybe he doesn't. That's kind of the angle I like there. And Grey Worm doesn't think it will be so easy, though. Grey Worm thinks, no, you're, you're giving them rope. Don't give them rope. Don't even try to play with them. The, so this pairing of compromise and underestimation of one's enemies due to contempt, that recurring theme I keep harping on, makes this scene, it's like the thematic crux of the episode. Because both of these things are present, but we don't know who is on which side of it. Who is underestimating who? Is Tyrion underestimating the slavers, or are they underestimating him? Grey Worm is saying, no, you're underestimating them, and Tyrion, maybe, maybe it gives him second thoughts. Maybe he's, maybe he's thinking, maybe Grey Worm is a point there. Elsewhere in the episode, it's always clear who is doing the underestimating and who isn't. But here, we don't know. So that's really cool. This, in this scene, it's foggy, and you can see it both ways. Both sides make sense, so we just, we're just going to have to wait. Meanwhile, the one they're all waiting on is up north being underestimated <laughs> and using it against her enemies. But there's no compromise in Danny's case. She only needed a little help from her friends, her existing ones who were hunting for her, and a new one, the young Khaleesi she won over to her cause. So, of course, well, before we get to Danny, though, we have Jorah and Dario, who are the friends that she needed a little help from. There's not maybe a whole lot to say here, except for the grayscale thing. Uh, Dario's not in a position to do much about it. At the time, he notices it. Some, a few people were wondering why he didn't have a stronger reaction to it, such as our own Patreon Lord Commander, George the Golden. Wondering about Dario's lack of fear there. To me, uh, you know, I had to think about it a minute, but I, I think it's just Dario being Dario. He's not, nothing much bothers him or threatens him. He's cocky that way. And at the moment, the, he was probably more, as, just, as intimidating as Grayscale is, he's was taking off his weapons at the moment he saw that, about to walk into Vase Dothrak unarmed, facing 100,000 Dothraki. So I don't know that he could have been any more intimidated than he already was. You know, he's <laughs> it's like, oh, grayscale, whatever. I'm, you know, that's. Besides, he knows that it's going to come up. Danny's going to be the one that makes is going to have to deal with that. She, he's going to tell her. She's going. He's going to have to. Jorah's going to have to spill the beans. It's kind of a underlying. Something's going to happen there. Jorah's that grayscale can't be hidden anymore. But. So, for, we still have no, no idea how this is going to play out. I'm really am curious. We've been talking about the grayscale almost every episode. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, we're still waiting. Right now, it seems like, uh, you know, what if a grayscale epidemic hits, a, hits the Kalasar? This gigantic Kalasar Danny has just formed. Well, that's, that's kind of terrifying. Now, another aspect of this whole scene, unlike Loris or John, who seemingly lost the will to fight while a female family member is rallying them, trying to stir them up, Jorah and... Dario, well, they didn't, they haven't given up, certainly. They certainly are fighting, and they're trying. But Jorah, yeah, Jorah already knows he's dying. To him, this is almost a suicide mission. The way he said, Danny's like, what are you doing here? We'll never get out of here. And he's like, well, we can only die trying. Something to that effect. It's not quitting, it's not giving up, but it's fatalistic. It's expecting to die. It's expecting that you have a lot, you're taking a, an extreme long shot chance at something that you don't really expect to succeed at. Dario, again, is cocky enough to maybe think that he might succeed here, but, uh, yeah, I don't know about... I, I, and other than that, it's it's kind of hard to say. So, yeah, well, Yoko, what did you think? Well, I was just wondering about Jorah. It really shows Jorah's complete love and conviction to Danny here, doesn't it? He knows... He can't ever be with Danny now he's got this grayscale, yet he still cares about her welfare above all else. I think this 
actually speaks well for his character on the TV show, although perhaps you could say that his obsession is still a little bit over the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Lady Gwen? What did you think about this Jorah and, and uh, Dario business here? Uh, well, I really like Jorah. Um, pardon me while I scroll down to find my notes. <laughs> <laughs> we lost you for a second you lost there, but me you're back in. i lost everything you're back in. all right <laughs> but i really i really like the way that jora refused to rise to dario's bait you know he dario keeps trying to you know needle him about danny choosing him but jora really just kept focused on the goal he acted like an adult uh, I want to say that I like Jorah more and more every season, which has to be a testament to the showrunners and Ian Glenn in particular, because by this time, book Jorah is pretty much insufferable, and I really can't stand him. So, so that's a plus for the show. So they show up with their desperate plan, and along, roughly along the lines of the theme, Danny takes charge with a much better more effective plan, far more audacious, much more epic. So here we are, Vase Dothrak with Dush Colleen. Danny has never really been big on compromise in the first place. I wish we were talking about how compromise is a big part of this episode. This is where that compromise just falls by the wayside. There's no compromise here. And that's a pretty good fit as it pertains to the Dothraki. They don't, they're not exactly big on compromise as a society either. They're ruled by strength. And holy crap, does Danny look strong now, right? Like, Lady Gwen, check up all the boxes of the boxes of strength here that Danny has displayed. Well, cows are often made by killing. Uh, if not killing cows, then killing others. <laughs> but she killed them all. All the cows. Bye bye. <laughs> twenty-one of them, apparently. We saw that in the behind the episode. Or there were, if there were, if it was twenty-one calls, or there were twenty-one guys in that room, if they weren't all calls. So right. So they're all gone now. Uh, <laughs> uh, she already had a reputation as the mother of dragons. We saw that reputation preceded her. Uh, some may have seen it as a rumor, but she confirmed it by repeating that whole mother of dragons un and un unburnt thing in this grand epic fashion. Um, so as previously mentioned, it's a society of horsemen and people with the best mounts are... The, the you know tend to be the strongest people as mounts are really prized and you really can't beat hers. <laughs> so, but she didn't even have to use him to yeah. defeat all those Kyles. So and that was one of the bigger surprises because I think we all as we said last week this 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 plot line lacked a bit of tension because we know Danny's going to come out of it well. But that said, we were surprised with how it went down because the the how was much different than what we expected. I think almost everyone thought Drogon was going to be a part of this, and he was going to be the one to save her, to be the main vehicle for her dominating the Dothraki. And he, and in a scene full of surprises, this was possibly the biggest part of that surprise. We're all even at the last second. I was like, "Wait, where is Drogon? How's he going to? Isn't it kind of late for Drogon to appear now?" And then she dips the brazier, and then, well, that's that. There, Drogon is not involved. So that was pretty cool. The, like like Lady Gwyn pointed out, Danny's reputation and who she was preceded her. The Lazarine call asked, "Did you really have? Do you really have three dragons?" So everyone seems to know that, and why wouldn't they know that? Well, you know, it's a huge deal, and it's happened years ago. You know, it, news would have spread 
about that, you know, dragons being reborn in the world, that's, that's going to get around, even out to the Dothraki Sea. So, one of Danny's ancestors drank filed, what, filed wire? Dah, wildfire. <laughs> Her father was in love with fire, you know. But it's Danny who seems to have be mastering it here, or at least, well, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt her. What we just saw there is a confirmation in show canon that I fully expect to be book canon as well, not the fire burning thing, not the immunity to fire thing, that Danny, not Rago, is the stallion who mounts the world. Yoke boy, tell us how, tell us about that. Yeah, I think that in the books, we should be careful what we kind of canonize and stuff. It probably happens a lot differently we we all think, but obviously there there are going to be some similarities there. Uh, I've got the line from the great moment in the House of the Undying: "Beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their grey heads bowed." So yeah, we can see the crones. They're coming out of a lake, which always I wondered if that was because there was a fire. I never, I never obviously thought what was happen, and never envisaged Danny was going to burn the Temple of Doshkalin. But I wondered why they were coming out of the lake. I, I, it did cross my mind that, you know, maybe they go to the lake because the place is on fire. In general, I'm really waiting for the books before, you know, forming my opinion of how this went down. But here, the result will most likely be very, very similar. And as a plot point, it's all about Danny having a united Kalasar at her back. That's the whole purpose of this, and I'm sure that's going to be the same. Yeah, like we didn't get the we didn't get them emerging from a great lake and shivering, but they certainly knelt before her, and it was not just the crones, but a lot of Dothraki, huge numbers of them, and we got to see. It was clever, I thought, the way they shot the scene. You got to see a variety of different Dothraki kneeling. You got to see the two, the old Dashkalene woman. The young one that helped Danny out, and a couple of warriors. You saw, like, you know, the, the bearded guys with their Dothraki accoutrements. So it was kind of nice. They showed, like, the, the smattering of different people there. Last episode, the wildlings are said to see John as a god. And now Danny's being seen that way as well. I think, Yoke Boy, I think you called that in advance. I think that was you, right? Yeah. I'm glad I got something right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pat yourself in the back for that one. Good job, good job. <laughs> Now, uh, Lady Gwen, you have some interesting feedback from a listener slash watcher. Yes. Uh, Casey Wade on Twitter asks uh, a question about Quake's prophecy. Are we seeing to go forward? You must go back coming true. And there has been a lot of that um, discussion that I've seen around the last couple of days. I think we pretty much all agree that this is likely a thematic nod to something that happens in the books. I don't think Quaithe actually says that in the show, uh, but she certainly does in the book, so we can see that there, you know, if this show scene is mirroring what where the books are going, that's kind of the answer to that. So as usual, it's the details that are different in the show. They get to the same point often that the book does. Of course, there are, there are exceptions to that. It's such a big you know, big story with so many parts. Obviously, some of it's going to have to change. But as we've been saying for years now, they, they tend to get to the same place, even if they take a much, much different route getting there. Where one of those major details diverges is, of course, the fire immunity thing. So 
that's clearly not book canon, the opposite of, and that has caused a bit of consternation, maybe more than a bit of consternation amongst the book fandom. Yoke Boy, tell us about that. Yeah, this goes back to 1999, an interview online with uh, fan group and George R. R. Martin, who asked him, do Targaryens become immune to fire once they bond to their dragons? And George's response was very clear. Thanks for asking that. It gives me a chance to clear up a common misconception. In capitals, Targaryens are not immune to fire. Exclamation mark. <laughs> he says, <laughs> the birth of Danny's dragons was unique, magical, wondrous, a miracle. She is called the unburnt because she walked into the flames and lived. But her brother sure as hell wasn't immune to that molten gold. And so that's from a George interview. But let's take a look at the books because uh, most people have caught this, but some people don't realise this. In A Dance with Dragons, after Daznak's pit, when she's in the Dothraki Sea, it says, Danny, starved, slid off Drogon's back and ate with him, ripping chunks of smoking meat from the dead horse with bare, burned hands. Mm. Yeah, I can't say I love the fire immunity. It's a little too high magic for me, but I didn't hate it either. And to be fair, the show set this up a long time ago, before the dragons were born even. In season one, Danny picked up one of the dragon eggs that was sitting on hot coals. Her handmaid saw, panicked, grabbed it from her. Result, handmaiden burnt? Danny not. And I, I think they didn't want to just have her dragon birthing scene on fire immunity come out of nowhere. So they set that up, and it's still set up many years later. So I guess they just didn't want that to come from nowhere. In the book, of course, we get her inner monologue, which drives her into the flames, which tells her she's the mother of dragons and all that goodness. I can get behind it, though. You know, after all, in a sense, it would be weirder for her to have been immune to fire only once that to me george has made that his canon and that's fine with me but in a sense that's actually weirder <laughs> that it only worked once but i, I you know again that's fine i, I like that I, I wonder if i like george's version simply because i was introduced to it more or first rather but you know i can go with either way it's it, it it's again it's a detail it's not a plot point it's not a major thing that's going to define the series from from now on or even at all really yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The fandom was really divided by this whole scene. I think that the non-book readers absolutely loved it in general, but it's the book readers who were more split. We actually ran a poll on the Radio Westeros Twitter uh, to see what people thought of the scene in general. 28% of people loved it, 29% liked it, 22% thought it was average, and 21% hated it. So... Wow, that's really balanced. <laughs> that, that's pretty balanced as far as polls go. You never usually get a poll like that that is that, that, is that close that we've done on Twitter. I'll give my personal opinion. As a book reader, I, I found the fireproofness a bit jarring to watch. And I think even aside from the book reader aspect, you know, I've been buried in the books, I can't help that. But I, even so, I, I still don't think I liked it all that much. My take is that it's a plot gift too far for Danny. Like Aziz said earlier, it's a little bit too high magic for me and my personal tastes. I do understand a lot of people loved it and I don't want to, you know, 
take anything away. I, I understand why they loved it. Um, this has nothing to do with the Culls being kings and king's blood, by the way, because there was no king's blood when she picked up those hot eggs in season one that Aziz was talking about. There's no king's blood there. It's not another kind of magic miracle. Danny in TV show canon seems to be fireproof all the time. And like I said, to me, it's a bit too much of a superpower that's beyond something like the magic we see in Warging and dragon riding. Dragon riding. It's just a little bit, a little step too far for me personally. Yeah, I I agree with the fact that you know the event was set up and show Danny is definitely not book Danny, but I just agree that this is um, kind of a superpower power that doesn't have a real basis in the Game of Thrones world. So. Um, it felt a little weird, but that said, it was certainly a powerful scene. It was very well produced. And in retrospect, I'm glad that it was Danny on her own and not Drogon just sweep, swooping in and saving the day again, which I have to admit is pretty much what I expected as well. So. Yeah, that would have just been a repeat of Daznak's mm-hmm. pit, basically. And yeah, that would have been. So I don't, you know, as far as much as we dislike the fire immunity, kind of all three of us seem to not be happy with it. Uh, it at least accomplished several things, which was that we were surprised and that it wasn't repeating an earlier Deus Ex Drogana. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so that so it does have some pluses, even despite the fact that it was jarring for us. So yeah, so it's not so bad. Now, some people had a problem with how fast the fire spread. At first I felt similarly, but this is one of the things I changed my mind upon after further reflection. There are numerous ways to explain it. First of all, the young Khaleesi and or Jorah and Dario may have oiled the floor a bit. I think out of those three, it's much more likely to be the young Khaleesi because she could actually would have a reason to be in there. It would be normal for her to be in there. That could be it. The braziers may have been filled with oil. Upending them would indeed spread the fire wherever the oil went quickly and suddenly. Nothing implausible about well-stocked braziers in a sacred temple. That's pretty standard. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of temples have their, you know, they never want the light to go out. Just cur- permanent fires burning all the time. That's kind of a common thing, sort of. Furthermore, the roof of the building is straw. <laughs> you know, dry as bone straw. So it would definitely go up really fast. To be fair, I do think the roof supports came down a little too quickly. They were always almost instantaneous. So, but I'm also not a structural engineer. <laughs> so, and it's kind of nitpicky in any case. So, We'll move on from that. A bit of a nod in this uh, earlier part of the scene, or before Danny even comes in, with the fuck Ago line. Perhaps an inside joke of sorts related to one of Danny's blood riders, Ago, not being in the show at all. They did originally have Ricaro, of course, but they killed him off, leaving Danny with no TV blood riders at all. But that, to be fair, was because the actor Ricaro left the show. He didn't. They didn't just you know, kick him off or something. It was a lot like uh, Great John. Great John just left and they didn't, re- they just said, okay, well, he's not in the show anymore. They didn't want to recast him because his role wasn't large enough to bother sending a new actor in there. They have already done that a few times and it was confusing. So they don't need to keep doing that. Okay, let us move on a bit here. Let's talk about our ratings for the episode. We'll, we'll have some fun with giving it a ranking and we'll move to our credits and then we'll take a short break and come back with post-credits fun, including Worry of the Week and discussion of what we've learned about episode five so far. Okay, so what did you guys give it? I have been starting with my ratings, so I'm going to let you guys go first this time, and I'll bring up the rear. So on the one to ten scale, 
Lady Gwen, you get to start this time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. No one wants to be first. (laughs) No one wants to be first. Um, Well, you won't be first next week. At least that you'll know that much. Thank you. That's very fair. Uh, Okay. I think uh, I'm going to give it an eight. Uh, There was a lot of good stuff. The the Chan and Sansa thing was just so huge for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. 8.0. What about you, York Boy? I think, Aziz, I will give it a very solid 7.5. I thought it was altogether cool. a, a good episode. I, I've said there's a couple of things I didn't like, but so that, no big deal. I thought it was very enjoyable TV. So I think we're going to be, a little, we're, we're not too far off each other, but a little more than usual. I'm going to give it an 8.5. I really, really liked it. I enjoyed rewatching it. I, I had problems with the two, as I always do, but the problems were lesser than usual, and I'm, you know, I'm generally a pretty positive guy about the show so I'll, I'll i'll stick with that i'll say 8.5 still ties my highest rating for the season i haven't given anything a nine yet maybe that'll happen so at the end of the season we'll give the whole season a rating and i'm sh- at this point it's gonna blow season five out of the water unless it takes a serious downturn fingers crossed that that doesn't happen but it's it's it might end up at this pace it might end up maybe not challenging season one for the best season but you know, firmly establishing itself as number two is, is a distinct possibility. The way, of course, we're only two-fifths of the way, 40%, four out of 10, however, you, whatever number you want to look at it, it's all the same. Still a lot to go. So that's cool. Looking forward to that. All right, let's do some credits and acknowledgements. And we've saved extra time to talk about the future of this season and a couple other things as well as what's coming up on episode five. So let us... Say thanks to Lord, First Lord, Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, and the Black Pupil, and the the Hidden Man. <laughs> That's your latest one, the Hidden Man. Lord Jim, the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire Blog, is our Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville, the Cunning, is Lord of the Chiliad and Ward of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodridge is the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. And Lord Kelly... Mi- Lady Kelly McMath, excuse me, of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire, is our king beyond the wall, working hard to subjugate the cannibal fen tribes. He's moved south into greener pastures to see what's there. Lord James Inkblade is our scholar knight and master of whispers. We have a new Grand Maester, but working on that nickname, so that'll be... That's in development still, but very proud and happy to announce that. A real-world doctor. Very filling, or very appropriate, rather. Lord Robert Jacobs is our master of coin. Rosie the Clever is our master of laws. Lord James Tuttle is our master of ships. We have Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki as the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabethian Frozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Greybay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan is of Castle Stonegate and Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North Hammer, Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram is Light of Winter's Garden and Beacon of the Northwest. Lord Mark Joseph is the Snow in Winterfell. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, and Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. 
Also thanks to King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate, Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear of our History of Westeros King's Guard, and the History of Westeros Night's Watch is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, who one of his questions was was posed in this episode, and he is assisted by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, this, the bastard of Green Shield. Again, as always, go to historyofwestros.com to learn more about getting your own cool title like that, have it read on the show, or and or posted on our supporters page. Great way to keep the show strong and functional. Okay, if you do not want to be spoiled on topics from episode 5, we've got Probably more than the usual number of spoilers. The trailers were a bit more revealing than usual. Maybe not intentionally so, but we figured some things out. So we've got a lot to say on that. If you don't want to be spoiled, see you next time. See you next week, either on Monday and or Wednesday. We appreciate you choosing History of Westeros for your show reviews and book reader analysis. So, episode 5 chatter, post-credits fun. Here's the description. From HBO, Tyrion seeks a strange ally. Bran learns a great deal. Brienne goes on a mission. Arya is given a chance to prove herself. Now, we've seen them be real sneaky with these descriptions before. As we talked about at length in prior episodes, the Night's Watch stands behind Alistair Thorne was a total trick. They were literally standing behind him when stuff was going down, when the wildlings were invading. So that's pretty funny. One of the things not mentioned in that description is the Ironborn, but we know that's coming from the trailer. The King's Moot is in play, something that we, back in maybe season four, probably thought we would never see. Maybe we thought the Ironborn were being largely dispensed with. When Dario mentioned that he captured the 91 Miranese ships, we thought, well, there's the ships Danny needs. But those ships got burned, so hey, Ironborn making a comeback. The interesting thing about this scene at the King's Mood is there's no sign of Euron. He kills Balon, then vanishes, and I assume he's going to show up right at the right moment. What's interesting about that shot, Asha, God, I did it again, Yara <laughs> says, I claim the Salt Throne. And there's, you can see this great shot there on the top of this high hill, and you can see the ocean laid out behind them and in front of them. And there's nothing there. It's just ocean. But then a second later is a shot of a ton of Ironborn ships. They certainly appear to be Ironborn ships. Can't tell if they're coming or going. But it could be Euron like making a big splash arriving saying, Hey, I claim the Salt Throne. Blankety blank. Theon accusing Yara. Important point there. You know, we didn't really talk about Theon and Yara very much. There wasn't a whole lot to say. But this is interesting because... Yara accuses Theon of what Euron's about to do. She says, oh, you show up right before the king's moot? You know, you expect me to believe that you're just here on, by coincidence? Well, yeah, that's, well, wrong. You're, you're accusing the wrong person of that. <laughs> we all know what's coming there. Euron's going to show up and, and uh, well, we don't know what he's going to do exactly, but we know he's going to show up. We know it's going to be interesting. And I wonder, are those ships arriving or leaving or is that... I don't know. It's really cool. I'm, I'm eager to find out more about the Ironborn. I'm really ready to see Pilu Azbek, the actor playing Euron, in action. You guys have any thoughts on this upcoming Ironborn plot, or is it just kind of a wait-and-see thing? Yeah, I think, for me, kind of a wait-and-see. But I'm just going to throw out there, because we didn't really talk about Theon and Yara. The one thing that really struck me, or one of the main things that struck me in that scene from this episode 
was Yara uh, channeling Balon, sort of sitting, brooding in that chair. I just thought that was a really, that was really made the scene for me. Yeah, you're right. That's cool. I didn't really think of it that way. It was just kind of her. Yeah, you're totally right now that I'm hearing it. Yeah, that really fits nicely. Like she was totally just being her father and maybe feeling his death. You know, maybe she's still trying to carrying a little of that weight that way. We also have the appearance of the red priestess Kinvara at Marine talking to Varus and Tyrion saying, you have knowledge has made you powerful, but there is so much you do not know. I really don't know where this is going. I suspect it might have to do with what we're seeing in the books a bit, which is that the Red Priests in general are starting to, and the followers of R'hllor are realizing who the Savior is. They're realizing Danny's out there. She, she's fulfilled the prophecy. She's checked off all the boxes that, that indicate she is Azor Ahai. And the fanatics are get, being fanatic about this. So, hmm. Very, there's a lot of reasons to be wary, of course, here. Uh, Varus, not a big fan of magic, and if the Red Priest action is gonna go up a notch, that won't make him comfortable. Do you guys have any thoughts on where this, this Red Priestess thing is going? Do you have any, any insights there, or do you think it'll be a bit like the books? No, I was just gonna say, it's, it's interesting that Mel, in this episode, s- switches her prince to his, that was promised to John. And as you say, it looks like the Red Priests in, from Volantis will be going for Danny. So it's just interesting that, that you know, they're being brought up in tandem as candidates. That's my thought. Right on. Um, so, yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. I'm very curious to see where they go with that. I wonder if it could lead to what I was saying earlier about maybe in the long term, we'll have Relora fanatics going up against Faith Militant. Etc. That could, you know, two religious, two groups of religious zealots fighting. Yeah, that'll end well. Hmm. Now we have a very big moment, which I don't know that we expected to see so soon. <laughs> but we underestimate Littlefinger's ability to travel quickly. Sansa confronts Littlefinger. Yoke boy, tell us about that. Yeah, she says to him, "Did you know about Ramsay?" So I don't know what your your two thoughts were, but I I thought that. He didn't know. I mean, he he does say in season five, you know, I don't know much about you. And there was some debate whether Littlefinger was playing the game or he gen- genuinely did, didn't know. But Aidan Gillen, the actor for Littlefinger, has revealed in an interview that that he really did not know about Ramsay, that he was such a monster. And really that he should have known, being someone with a little bit of a sp- spy network and so on. And Aidan Gillen calls it a rare mistake by his character. And it's, it's quite a mistake if Sanders is main piece in his game. What a mistake to make. Yeah, and it's interesting to see where this confrontation happens. It appears to be happening at Castle Black. I'm not 100% sure of that, but it's indoors. Which means the army gets there, not only gets, it, gets there really fast, but they go to the wall. Which is kind of odd. Not It's not super odd. That's where Stannis went. But... It's, I wouldn't, I would wonder why they went there. Maybe they would just assume like Ramsey does and everybody else that Sansa would head to Jon Snow. So it could just be that. And so he's figured he's kind of noodled that out. Still, it's a little strange how quickly they arrive. So we'll have to wait and see. And what matters here isn't necessarily the truth of whether he really did know about Ramsey or not, but whether he can convince Sansa that he didn't, whether he, she can be convinced that. 
So, yeah. Lady Gwen, what about you? What do you think about this? Well, I think... <laughs> I think you may have just alluded to it. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about uh, Littlefinger's teleporter. Um, you know, and his... He's arrived in the Vale with the news that Sansa's just escaped Ramsay. So there's no kind of... There's no... Where, Where was, was he, he all during, that yeah, time? Like because we last saw yeah. him in like episode seven, or so you know, and that was he was at King's Landing for he, a while. So then he I then he kind of talked to Olena, and then he just disappeared. We didn't see him. Uh, we know Walda had time to have a baby and all this stuff. So what was he doing? Traveling, I guess. Here in this case, maybe he spent all those months traveling. Realistically. Speaking, he actually traveled. Going this to get time. a yeah. Kerr Falcon <laughs> and all that stuff, but now. <laughs> He's going to appear uh, at the wall with an army, so his his teleporter is vastly increased in size, and he's going to fit twenty thousand people inside it and speed his way up to the wall to talk to Sansa next episode. Right on. Okay, well, also Arya and Jaken seem to be making a comeback. They were in the first three episodes and not in this last one. He hands her what appears to be a vial of poison, I would assume, and says something along the lines of, does death only come for the wicked and leave the decent behind? Which, given the description, which is that Arya is given a chance to prove herself, it sounds like she's being told to kill somebody who's not a bad person, somebody that she would be uncomfortable killing. It sounds like she argues against this killing, and Jaken says, look, this is what we do. Death comes to everyone, not just the good people. It's not the good people who get succor and the evil people who get, you know, their karmic justice. So it sounds like a moral dilemma a bit. Maybe this is what we'll see leading towards Arya's distancing herself or leaving the faceless men. If not, something along the lines that we predicted of her being sent to Old Town to meet Sam. Either way... Really curious to see where it's going, because as we've been saying for quite a while, Arya's plotline is kind of hard to figure. It's hard to see where it's going. Not in a bad way, just how does this tie into the main plot? Do you guys have any thoughts on what's next for Arya, or is this still just, who knows? Well, if she she goes rogue from the faceless men, you know, I can see her. This is an idea that's been around that I thought of myself, too. She could uh, head to the Riverlands and play out the Lady Stoneheart role if they're looking for someone to take over that kind of role. That's a possibility. I mean, it seems like a long way, but the show can do things like that, I think. Yeah. The idea of going rogue is interesting to me as it pertains to the the possibility that she takes Jaken's role and goes to the the Citadel, shows up in Old Town, meets Sam, which which would help them accomplish the book version of Arya and Sam meeting in Bravos. Now, perhaps they're taking it a step further. I, I kind of doubt this, but I want to throw it out there. There's a, a deep theory running through the fandom, the book fandom, that Jaken is a rogue, faceless man too, that he's doing things kind of on his own a bit. There's evidence for that is pretty circumstantial, but it's worth considering. And so if he is going rogue and he's at the Citadel... Well, then, if Arya goes rogue and she's at the Citadel, then that kind of ties together nicely. So keep that possibility in mind, folks. Not a lot of evidence to support it, but thematically and, you know, in a sense, the way they like to combine plot lines and mash things down a bit, I could see that happening. But the Jake and going rogue thing isn't on very strong footing in the first place. But it's certainly possible. So that's cool. We'll see where that's going. 
Maybe Ari will leave Bravos this season. Maybe not. I do think it'll be the season. What do you guys think? You think, just guess, just off the top of your head, Arya stays and is gone from Bravos by the end of the season? Or not? I hope we see her making a move in the last episode. I really do. I've had, I kind of reached my tolerance with the House of the Black and White. Uh, only a few more episodes <laughs> of that I can take. I'd like to see her do something different now. Yeah, it'll be nice to see her get involved with the plot, main plot line again. Maybe, yeah, maybe like the way she sails to Bravos at the end of yes. season four, yeah. she'll sail back at the end of season six. That'd that be would nice. be nice. I'd like to see her someplace with better lighting next, next season. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I didn't notice from before, when right before she gets her vision back, she's praying to the werewood face, at, uh, which is, you know, that's episode three. That was actually pretty obvious. She just shows the werewood face, and then it comes down, and she's just sitting there praying. But that's kind of still kind of a cool little piece of uh, visual goodness there that we did not mention. Felt like it deserved mention, even though it was episode three. Okay, here's where it gets really cool. We're going to see Bran. Doesn't look like there'll be any more Tower of Joy stuff. Looks like they're still kind of keeping that on deck, I suppose. It's coming, but not yet. What we do see is... Bran standing before a huge army of the dead and behind him this was really cool when I stopped the stopped the the TV and paused looked at the the scene in uh, you know close up there was a big tree covered in ice where Bran was in between that and the army and around the tree were all these black stones like obelisks like really not natural and it looked really cool and i really wonder what the heck is going on there and this is i guess that scene from the trailer preseason trailers where the nice king grabs brand's hand and he's like man he's looking around he's all terrified and we see brand mira trying to wake brand up like brand brand wake up is it because he's stuck in this vision and bad things are happening or is something like go happening right that moment in the cave you know it could be a bit of misdirection like brand you got to wake up stuff's going down i'm really excited about this what do you guys have to say about that is that just a who knows kind of thing or or do you have some additional insight oh it is a bit of a who knows isn't it it's the complete unknown now <laughs> this is well beyond anything in the books and when I heard this episode, it's called The Door, isn't it? This next episode. I believe so. I really thought we were going to go and see Liana in her bed of blood. But no, it doesn't seem that way at all, does it? I don't think they can do this Night's King scene and go back to the Tower of Joy. So it's yeah. really interesting. Two brand visions in one episode seems too much, right? Yeah. <laughs> So there's another spoilery thing from this. Now, HBO Now had briefly a cover photo for their description of the next episode, which was moved and changed to something else after being up a short while. A few people pointed this out to us. So thanks, watch, thank you, clever watchers, observant watchers, for giving us this tidbit. It's a shot of four children of the forest kneeling kind of uh, not kneeling but crouching by some trees one of them is definitely leaf that's the same actress for sure and but there's no snow behind them they're standing in the wilderness and it's completely sunny and green so it's clearly a vision who knows how long in the past it is and this is this is very hard to figure too but really cool now blood raven's already been aged up the three-eyed blood raven so perhaps 
the children will be aged up as well. They're supposed to live a few hundred years or something like that. Uh, so if we're seeing a really long time ago, a vision, which already, this, I'm already contradicting myself, Yoke Boy. We just said that they probably won't have two visions in the same in the same episode, but yet this vision probably has nothing to do with the Night's King vision because of the lack of snow. So maybe we are getting two visions, or maybe it's not a vision. But I don't know how that could be given the greenery, so I'm a bit confused. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Uh, uh, well, real quick before you do, our, our listener uh, and Lord supporter, Gregor the Toasty, suggests the aging of Bloodraven could be related to this scene in a sense that, like I said, that the children will be aged up. Or it could be some sort of like Bloodraven knew the Night's King, maybe even personally, or has prior experience with him. And since we don't think the Night's King is even a character in the books... This takes us in a direction that we really can't predict, especially because uh, even if he was in the books, the book hasn't gotten to that point yet. So that was a long way of me setting you guys up to give your thoughts on this. Well, I think, you know, it could be one long vision. It, the description says Bran learns a great deal. And so I wonder if it's just this sort of like montage through history kind of thing, uh, in hmm. which case... That could explain Mirror trying to wake him up if he's been kind of inside for oh. so long. You know, he's had that warning about staying for too long inside the vision. So that could Good explain call. that. So we'll see. That is very cool. I like that idea a lot. The old, you know, you stay in there too long and you drown. That's something we definitely talked about in previous episodes. That's a very good piece of insight there. I like that idea. Okay, unless you guys have any more thoughts, let's do our worry of the week and our newly armored and plot secondary featurette added on to our worry of the week. Rickon, obviously, still on the list. That hasn't changed. We could take Osha off, sadly, not for the not for the good reason. Littlefinger, again, I, I mentioned this in the show only review. I, I'm I think he's not gonna get it soon. But I, I think he's going to continue to talk his way out of things for now. I don't think that Sansa's going to like have him killed if he shows up with a Veil army prepared to help. If his reckoning will, will have to wait until they, you know, make use of his 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 soldiers, which they really do need, given the numbers we were shown there: two thousand Wildlings, five thousand Bolton's soldiers. That's just not going to cut it. They need those Veil soldiers. So I don't think Sansa can take any kind of revenge or punishment on Littlefinger with that bigger problem looming. But I don't know that he's going to survive this season. Maybe he dies early the next season. But he, he as the show transitions more to the higher magic, or epic arc of the White Walkers fully invading, the top schemers just have less to do. What, what scheming can be done in the face of that? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm dubious that Littlefinger has a role to play later. But I'm sure confident that whatever happens it's going to be cool and fun and interesting but i don't know that's that's a it's a tough one loris for me is is on the list now for sure what do you got do you guys have any thoughts on loris do you think maybe he's gonna just he's asking to have be put out of his misery possibly if that's the right interpretation um and if if the high sparrow's got some sort of trick plan like i think like we like we uh, sort of think is a very strong possibility that could go bad for Loras. Um, I think Marjorie's a little more likely to survive because I think the High Sparrow wants to control her. He doesn't, but Loras is not part of that plan. You guys have any thoughts on Loras on this list? Um, you kind of agree with me or maybe think he's safer than that? No, I think he's definitely kind of doomed. Um, remember, we don't really know what's happened with Loras in the books. Uh, 
Yeah, he might be dead in the books or dying in the books already. Yeah, there are lots of theories surrounding that. But you know, I've said before that I I wouldn't be surprised if you know the High Septon tried to use him in some way against Cersei, thereby ridding himself maybe of one or you know guaranteeing that he's going to get rid of one of them. You know, offer Loras a deal or something. However, it pans out. I think Loras is you know pretty much doomed. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's the toasty like Lord Gregor, <laughs> although he probably won't be burned, and he certainly won't be bred. <laughs> now Theon, Theon again, uh, since we didn't talk about him much this episode, we've kind of talked about him dispersed throughout the episode rather than focus on on him here. I wonder, in the same light, what role does he have now? It's really unclear to see what could he possibly do. Is he going to go with Asha and help her? in Volantis to help bring Danny? Like, does that make sense? Euron probably doesn't want him around, and if Euron's going to take over, then Euron is going to want him gone completely. And it's hard to use the book as a predictor here because Theon is, you know, captive of Stannis at this point in the books. And we've talked about how he seems in pretty bad shape in the book, too. Like, it's hard to imagine how he's going to get out of this predicament, how, you know, how the Northern Lords all want him dead for what he did. Is that how this is going to play out? Is he going to be... Is this, he's just going to die here in the Iron Islands instead of being killed by Stannis since Stannis isn't exactly around to do that <laughs> on his end? And Stannis wanted to keep him around because of his knowledge of Winterfell. Well, now that's taken care of by Jon being the one that has knowledge of Winterfell being involved in the plan to attack Winterfell. So they don't need Theon. They don't have Jon in the book for that, so... Yeah, it's all different characters playing different roles. It gets a bit confusing here. Now, we can talk about... Well, unfortunately, Oak Boy's connection seems to have died a little bit before the end here. So I'll say what he was going to say here about Mel and Davos. He's still worried about Mel with the Davos and Shireen thing, how that could come to a head. But he suggests that that will probably not come to a head for a little longer. So maybe this is a advanced worry of the week. Rather than, kind of like Littlefinger, rather than, you know, something that's going to happen maybe next episode. And that's just how they do it. This, it's the smaller deaths that happen earlier in the season and the bigger deaths happen towards the end. Of course there's exceptions, like Joffrey. But that's the general pattern. Uh, what about you, Lady Gwen? Do you have anyone to add to this list? I do, and I think I'm going to be an outlier because I'm looking down at our armored and plot notes, <laughs> and I think we may not agree on That's this. That's good. But I, yeah, it shows that we do have different opinions about things. I think Dario, I'm worried for him. It, the look on his face when Danny emerged from the flames said a lot to me. I, I don't think he can really be her lover anymore. So and he's been um, saying that too, like, yeah, she's going to get bored of me eventually. We'll all disappoint her eventually. Right. Yeah. So. I really think his day is done, and I'm not sure what kind of purpose he serves right now. But you might have different ideas. I think that's a good segue. To the yeah, next well, thing. you're right. I, I, I'm, I'm with you that he's eventually doomed. I do not see him having a long-term role, and and that applies to the book as well. I think you know he's a hostage right now of the slavers, and obviously Barristan ordered the wind blown to go try to save him. Don't know if that's going to happen or not, whether it's going to be successful. But yeah, Dario's 
He's war. He Dario is war and woe. You know, that's Danny says. It's hard to, and she's got plenty of that already. She's already going to have a hard time bringing her people over to Westeros. All these foreigners and people with different beliefs with the xenophobic culture at Westeros. It's already going to be difficult without Dario picking fights left and right and doing his thing. So, yeah, she's probably better off without him. Barristan says the same. So, but what I mean is that he at least temporarily is safe because I thought he might die during this particular plot line. I agree that his, his doom is, you know, on the horizon at some point, but for now he's safe. He's not going to die. Maybe not next episode, but yeah, it, it might, he might make it till the end of the season. He might make it till next season, but yeah, maybe he lives long enough to die to the walkers. <laughs> <laughs> Get to Westeros and, and fall to some walker. Now, actually, you know, speaking of that, before we talk about newly armored and plot, as one other thing I wanted, one detail I, I missed that I wanted to mention, and I think you, I think you may have had some thoughts on this as well, Lady Gwen. Looking at the prosthetics for the Children of the Forest, and looking at the prosthetics for Night's King. Now, I think it's silly. the The idea that John and Mira are related because of how they look, I think that's a bit silly. Not, it's not a bad thought, but if you but you unpack it, it becomes silly. In other words, like they didn't pick her because she looks like Jon Snow, and they don't look at all alike in the books. So I really don't think there's anything to that. But this is prosthetics. These are designed a specific way. And you look at the eyes of those children, and you look at the eyes of the others. Well, the children don't have blue eyes, but they've got a very similar quality. Would you Would you agree with that, Lady Gwen? I would agree, and I would also point out, I was just reading an article about, um, it was, I think it was an interview with Michelle Clapton, who was the costume designer, talking about how it was Quaith and Melisandre, actually, but she drew purposeful links between Quaith and Melisandre in their costuming and their accessories. So we know the show does use costuming and makeup and that sort of thing. Uh, as ways to draw links between things. So I think that this is very interesting, the clear similarity between the prosthetics and the makeup. And we have long, in the fandom as a whole, suspected a connection between the, the others and the Children of the Force. This is not just an idea out of nowhere. It's not based solely on the similar eyes and similar ridging of the forehead, which is also another detail that they have in common. Very interesting. That's really cool. And maybe we'll learn something about that connection in this next episode. Because like you said, Bran learns a lot of things. And we have already seemed to be seeing two, at least two different scenes from his visions. So, yeah. Very cool. Really neat. I, I hope that develops into something. I hope we get we learn some more. And it definitely could apply to the books. I don't think this is something that the book, the showrunners can just entirely make up on their own. Because I, I don't know that they would have thought of it on their own. So I imagine George had to tell them. Um, if that's what's happening at all, maybe not. So in closing for this episode, I will mention Ramsey also is belongs on the worry of the week, but we're not worried. We're, we're more like, please kill him of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Please die of the week. Right. So, but we unfortunately suspect he's, he's in that at least for now. Yeah. Not going anywhere. He's going to be in that big final battle, which will happen whenever, episode 8, 9, or 10, probably. And maybe he doesn't make it out of that alive, but he's at least going to last that long. So, a little more Ramsey for now. We'll have to live with him. Just hopefully he doesn't kill Rickon first. Uh, Although that, it sort of seems like a slender hope. It's still a hope, nonetheless. 
clinging to that thin reed of hope. <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> that, that mirror reed. <laughs> very, very, very narrow, yes. <laughs> okay, everybody, thanks again for tuning in to History of Westeros. Thank you to the Radio Westeros team. Lady Gwen, you can... Tell people where to find you. Uh, Yoke Boy, we don't know where to find him. He's vanished. <laughs> you can find our podcast at www.radiowesteros.com. We're on iTunes, and we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, we'll find Yoke Boy eventually. He'll be back. <laughs> That's right. We will. <laughs> uh, so, everybody, thanks again for tuning in. We will be back, of course, next week at the usual times with more fun Game of Thrones discussion. It will be halfway through the season at that point, almost there. So it'll also be time soon for us to announce some extra shows to discuss what's happened so far as a whole, rather than breaking down each episode. It, it pays sometimes to look at them as a group. So we will be announcing some plans along that regard in short order. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in again. And if you want to check out our website, you should. I highly recommend it. We've got a lot of photos from the preseason. We've got other episodes posted. We've got our history episodes and everything. We occasionally post blog posts, things like that. Also, a lot of ways to help out the show. You can support us through Patreon, of course. You've heard the titles plenty of times. You, by now, probably know what the deal is with that. You can also shop through Amazon on our site. Any link you follow that takes you to Amazon will be credited to us. No additional charge to you. Just helps out the show. It's a free roll of sorts. And if you want to check out the books in greater detail, check out the audiobooks. Audible.com subscriptions are available through our site as well. You can get a free 30-day trial. Get a free book download. We recently found out that Game of Thrones is Audible.com's third most popular title. That's cool. So I guess... A few of you have taken my advice, at least. And listening to it on audio is a great way to combine it with chores, exercise, commutes, the most popular thing we hear from people. So check that out. Free 30-day subscription includes a free book download. If you don't like the subscription, you get to keep that free book. Win-win. Good times. All right, everybody. Valar Morgullis. Valar Reredis. Valar Relistinus, I guess, with that one. And Valar everything else is... Yeah. I'll keep coming up with new dorky things like that to say at the end of the show. Until next time, everybody, we'll see ya. <laughs>